What is a university degree worth? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Brian Kaplan. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Brian Kaplan. Brian Kaplan is professor of economics at George Mason University. His major fields of interest are public choice, public finance, and monetary economics. He's also a New York Times bestselling author. He wrote the book, The Myth of the Rational Voter, named the best political book of the year by the New York Times. He's also the author of the books, Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, The Case Against Education, and Open Borders, which is an excellent graphic novel co-authored with Saturday Morning Breakfast Serial's Zach Wienersmith. He's currently working on his recent project, Poverty, Who to Blame? Brian blogs for EconLog and has been published in the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Time, Newsweek, The Atlantic, and has appeared on ABC, BBC, Fox News, MSNBC, and C-SPAN. He's also published in many notable academic journals, such as American Economic Review, Public Choice, and the Journal of Law and Economics, just to name a few. Today, we'll be focusing more on his book, The Case Against Education, Why the Education System is a Waste of Time and Money. It will serve as the foundation for our discussion today. Brian, welcome to The Curious Task. Thank you very much for having me. We base each episode on a question, just go over the conversation takes us. Our question today is, what's a university degree worth? I'd like to start by talking about something you say actually at the very beginning of your aforementioned book that I read in the intro there. You say that every time a problem is detected in the education system, many people say it either means the money's being spent in the wrong place or or more money needs to be spent. That is, there's not enough of it to go around. You say right off the bat in your book, before you get into anything else, that on the contrary, education's supreme defect is that there's too much of it, too much education to go around. Even before we get to the evidence and the other things we're going to talk about in our chat today, why'd you put that right, right at the intro of your book? Like, Why is that so important for you to get right off the bat? I don't like to beat around the bush. I like to be forthright and clear. And that is the heart of my book, is just saying that we, that society spends way too much money in education and we get very little for it and we better if we had less. right? And, I, and I'd also say that when I pick a topic, I always pick topics where hardly anyone else wants to defend the position. Hmm. I, I figure if, if uh, someone else is already defending the position, I don't need to do it. Someone else is already on the job. So when I write a book, First thing in my mind is, will this book be written by somebody else if I don't write it? And if I say, yeah, or it's already been written, then I don't do it. So I write the books that I think won't be written unless I do them. And a book saying that we've got way too much education uh, and we should cut, that's the kind of book that I think is very, at least very rare, very hard to find other books like that. So I wanted to write it. And when I'm writing that book, I want to be clear that that's what I'm doing. So people know that they're getting something different from what they'd be getting from almost anyone else. Of course, when economic society, even politically speaking, or even marketing speaking, uh, that's obviously immediately stepping into a minefield, right? Like someone might say to you, what do you mean you're against education, Brian, right? These are the kinds of things people say when you, when you think of um, you know, talking about cuts to education, and uh, and and you and you kind of say again in the intro that there's there's a lot of things wrong with some of these underlying assumptions when someone would say something like that or, or have that sort of reaction. Uh, one of the first things you talk about in your intro, uh, even before you get to anything else in the book, again is is this idea of, of human capital purism. I want you to take our, our listeners through that. This is something like, for instance, when a politician says we're investing in people, they almost think there's there's a direct correlation between how much money they throw at something and and what comes out of that. So, so take us through what what human, uh, the, the idea of human capital investment is firstly, but then also talk about the purism that's involved with a lot of the people that believe these things. So you're familiar with what capital investing is, right? Normally it's like building a factory or something like that. Uh, now economists for decades have said, well, it's not, it's not, not merely physical things that we can invest in. We can invest in human beings, right? So a person can go and learn Spanish and then they have this capital investment of Spanish in their humanity. And they can then go and do tasks that require the knowledge of Spanish. Right? So that is the idea of human capital, that there can be a human being who has had skills and resources invested in him, which then raises his value in the market. Now, of course, when people think about human capital, the first thing they usually have in mind is actually education. So the idea is you go to school and we pour resources into you and you emerge better able to do things in the real world. So this is the standard rationalization that you get for education. You get it from teachers, from parents, from politicians. We're going to take these children who really can't do much of anything, and we're going to pour a lot of educational resources into them. And at the end, wow, you'll be amazed at how much they can accomplish. 
So that's the general idea. And as I say in the book, it's not completely wrong. So it is true that when people go to school, sometimes they learn some skills as a result of going to school, and then they can take those skills and apply them in the real world, mm-hmm. and they can help themselves as well as mankind by using the skills they've learned. Uh, human capital purism, however, is the idea that that explains everything going on, that that's the whole story. Human capital purism says that if students who have finished college earn 70% more, that is because their skills have been enhanced by 70%. And I say, no, that's not really true. Actually, there are many reasons why people who have spent more time in school would earn more money. And the acquisition of useful job skills is only one. And, and one of the things I like in the intro of your book as well, as well that you do is that you say that although you present lots of evidence later in the book, one thing that we can all do is just rely on our years of experience if we've been exposed to the education system, right? Mm-hmm. You, you, you joke and also seriously say in the book that, you know, you've been, you've been to school for, for 40 years or over 40 years. I, I sort of like that statement. Yeah, yeah. You said you're, you're yeah. starting grade four, whatever. I forgot what the number was, but in the book at the time you're writing, you said, I'm starting grade 40 something next year. So that was very interesting. And, and I, and I kind of like that too, right? Cause you're totally right. Even before you get into any of the metrics and the, and the exercises you take people through in, in the rest of the book, um, I think anyone can sort of sit there for a couple seconds and think that what you just explained is the kind of stuff that's hammered into our head, even if all you've had is elementary school and high school. Um, that's what they're talking about, right? Take X, Y, and Z course, and you'll be set up for A, B, and C later. So this is just not only something that you can look at as an adult and back on, but something that's you're told right from day one when you hit that education system. Oh, yeah. Propaganda is intense and ongoing. Yes, for sure. And and another uh, another thing that you concept you bring up in the book before you get into the uh, drilling down into them is the the idea of signaling. So uh, can, can you just talk about signaling in general, and also this this fascinating idea that you said you want to kind of take this theory out of the ghetto for where it's been placed. We'll talk about how it relates to education later, but but let's talk about signaling and the story behind why this is like a ghettoized theory. This was very interesting to me. So we just talked about human capital and the idea that. One reason why going to school raises your income is that you actually acquire useful skills, which you can then go and apply in the real world. Employers pay you extra because you know how to do something. That is one theory. Signaling is the main competing theory. It says, all right, at least an additional reason why going to school raises your income is not that you've learned useful skills, but rather you have jumped through some hoops and thereby gotten a stamp on your forehead. You have certification, which convinces employers that you're worthwhile. What's the difference? The difference is that the certification isn't changing you as a, uh, changing what you're able to do, rather is changing the way that employers perceive you. Right now, why would education change the way that employers perceive you? Well, anytime you successfully complete something difficult, this suggests something good about you and employers reasonably will prefer people that have more stamps on their forehead and better stamps to those that have less. And even if all you've done is study philosophy, even so an employer might say, well, I mean, obviously this is not a philosophy bank here. But <laughs> nevertheless, the fact that this guy has a philosophy, you know, a philosophy degree from Stanford makes us willing to go and invest in this person and train him to do something that is quite unrelated to what he studied in school. But nevertheless, he has given us confidence through his successful performance in Stanford philosophy that he is trainable, that he's smart, and so on. And in the book, I say that the three main things that you're signaling with your educational performance are, first of all, just your intelligence second of all, your work ethic, and then third of all, conformity, third Mm -hmm. of all, conformity, right? Um, Now, in terms of the ghetto, on the ghetto, how can educational signaling being a ghetto, given that there is a guy named Michael Spence who got a Nobel Prize for working in this area, there's four or five other economists who also won Nobel Prizes who have also done work in this area. How controversial, how out in the intellectual boondocks can this view be if they're handing out Nobel Prizes for doing it? Right. And my answer is that the Nobelists are getting prizes for theory, pure theory. They're getting Nobel Prizes for working out the math in gory detail, but none of them actually have really stuck their necks out and said, this is, a, this is very important for understanding education in the real world. And what I say is precisely that it is very important for understanding education in the real world. I'm not saying this is just a curious or fun theory. I am saying this actually explains real life. And that's where I stick my neck out. And then as a result, since I am talking about real life, I don't spend nearly as much time on just working out the math. Instead, I say, let's look at facts that would distinguish between the pure human capital story, the only thing going on is they're getting useful skills, versus my view, which is the complex view that 
Part of what's going on is that you're getting useful skills, but a lot more of what's going on is that you're getting stamps on your forehead saying, grade A worker, good job. Give this person your close attention when you're considering who to hire. Right. And and, and on that note, you, you sprinkle notes throughout the book that basically say that um, other people and other economists, other people crunching numbers that have been working on education and spending and things like that, that, that you, every now and then you have a sentence like, well, if people actually considered signaling, then they might consider X, A, B, and C, but instead they just like to either completely ignore it or only use it when it might actually help with what they're trying to do, which is sort of focus on the human capital theory. Obviously, I haven't had a chance to read all the, all the evidence behind your book, but but that was very interesting yeah, to me. There's also often the, there's the token signaling footnote. Right. right? So right. Yeah. often if you read you know, like, a, like a substantial article on the economics of education, there'll be, a, yeah, yeah, there's also the signaling thing, but uh, and, and, uh, great, great, great. Michael Spence, yes. Okay, moving on. Okay, now we'll just <laughs> pretend like none of that ever happened. So, so it's definitely, as you said, like you're, you're one of the only people, in, at least in, in, your, in your knowledge, that have actually used it and leveraged it fully for like a, a bigger work yes. as opposed to just, as you said, the signaling footnote. Right. And you know, what I, the other thing that I say is that economists in general are quite sympathetic to signaling, but the economists who specialize in education and labor economics aren't. So it's a tough spot because when I go and tell economists who don't know much about it, they're like, yeah, well, of course. So like, isn't that what Michael Spence got a Nobel Prize for? Like, what are you doing that's so original? And I say, the people that actually uh, tried to research the real world and specialize in this don't care about it. And they're like, what? Whereas you go to the the specialists and they're like, ah, bah, signaling. Yeah, we gave a Nobel Prize for it, but that's just theory. Look, we all know that in the real world, it's pouring skills into human beings. And that's what's going on. And this other thing, ah. And and back to like the signaling itself. So one of the interesting things as well that you talk about what happens with employers when it comes to signaling, or, or quite frankly, actually anybody else looking at someone who's quote unquote educated, is this idea that 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 there the view on someone gets quote unquote locked in. You say in your book, so someone want who wants to apply to job X, for instance, so employers look for Y credentials uh, and, and say maybe even a specific certification from a school in some industries. Um, and and so not only this was interesting to me. So not only does this create a situation where anything outside that box is not what the employers or people looking at these people are locked into, but there's also sort of an inverse effect, right? You, you bring up in the book that it actually becomes off-putting to employers if you're not in this category, these categories that are locked in. So not only is there sort of a neutral effect, but a detrimental effect. Yeah. yeah. So this is actually crucial to the book because one of those three things I said that you're signaling with your education. So you're signaling your intelligence, you're signaling your work ethic, you're signaling your conformity. All right. Intelligence there are way cheaper ways of showing how smart you are than going to school at MIT for four years. You could just send in your SAT scores, mm. right? You could do it. You could do an IQ test. You know, so that then it says, so that, well, that should just take a few hours. Shouldn't take years. And then simply for the work ethic, well, why can't I show that I'm hardworking by just working hard at anything whatsoever? Why can't I show how hardworking I am by memorizing every episode of Star of Star Trek? Right. All right. And that's where we come to this conformity part. And this is where I say that there aren't good other ways of showing how conformist you are, because by definition, signaling conformity in a weird way doesn't signal conformity, it signals non-conformity, right? So you know, if you're in a society where people wear suits to, in order to job interviews, you can't say, yeah, but what about a kimono? Could I do a kimono? It's like, no, you can't do a kimono. It's like, well, why not? That, uh, that signals conformity in ancient Japan. They're like, yeah, but not here, right? And they're like, well, isn't there some way I could just do something different? Like, no, it's a catch-22. If you try signaling your conformity in some, in some novel way, you don't signal conformity, signal non-conformity. And I say really what's going on, the reason why the education system is so hard to change, the reason why education looks so much like it did 100 years ago or 500 years ago is precisely because there is this com combined signal. And notice, uh, it's one where you have a person who's clearly smart, clearly hardworking, but they have not, but they dropped out of high school. Employers don't say, oh, well, very smart, very hardworking, and average conformity. Instead, they say, very smart, very hardworking, and off the charts low conformity, because a person this smart and this hardworking should have had no trouble doing well in school. Right. So why would they have why would they have dropped out given their other given their, their their immense intelligence, given their great work ethic? It can only be because they have some horrible other personality defect. At least I'm very worried. I'm very worried about it. Yeah, so you know, maybe they've got a good story. Well, maybe you know, like you know, like we had an illness in the family, and then one bad thing got in, one bad thing happened, another bad thing happened. So a perfect storm of seventeen unfortunate events. So even though I'm totally conformist, I just didn't do the normal thing. But 
you know, now you're at the level where employers like, uh, I, know, I guess it's possible, but I'm not in the possibility business. I'm in the making money business. And this is actually one area of the book I'm pointing the book I really did like too, because when you combine what you were just talking about with the fact you said anyone can relate to this stuff just through their years of experience, it's totally true, right? And you, we can, we've all been in conversations where someone almost is doing those categories without knowing it in their head. How many times do we hear someone say, oh, you know, that person's son, very smart, uh, works very hard, but, 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 but unfortunately can be very lazy at times, right? And this is usually attached to the fact that they didn't finish a semester or something like that, or that one credit shy of the bachelor's. Yeah, the one credit our, shy. Yeah, like that kind and of I mean, thing. I mean, again, like, what's really striking is the case where there's the person who's smart and hardworking, but they're just defiant. Right. And like, he just conformity. refuses to do the one last thing. Yeah. Right now, what's funny to me is that, you know, I've had so many economists who have just said, oh, this can't really be right, Brian. There's something, you know, may sound true, but no, no. In the real world, and when I, when, I, when I deal with people, I say, so what do you think about a, a graduate student who just refuses to defend their dissertation? What's going to happen to them? So they've done all the coursework. They've written the whole dissertation, but they just can't somehow see their way to organizing the one right. last freaking meeting to defend the dissertation to get the signatures. And I say, what will become of that student? And this is where there's some sputtering. Because a lot of professors know that person. <laughs> like the student just wouldn't do the one last thing and then they couldn't get their PhD and they couldn't get the job. And I had put in all this work to get them the job and then they just wouldn't do the one last thing. So right. it all fell to pieces. And I'm like, yeah. So stop telling me I'm crazy. This is exactly describes the, the world as you know it. hundred percent. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, and I, have a, I have a couple of questions later to, to drill down into some of the things that you did in the book and, and sort of the meat of the matter in the middle there with stats and things like that. But before we leave this point about signaling, I, I want to uh, give you the opportunity to spend, uh, you know, a second on, on telling people what you did at the beginning of the book as well, which is at the end of the day, although signaling is very important. And as you said, you want to, you know, quote, burn that into people's brains at the beginning of the book you still make sure before you leave the point to say that the point here isn't for the reader to take a pure signaling view as well. As you said, this is a combination of factors. Yeah. So the most unfair thing that my peers do to me is say, oh, Brian says oh, like education's only signaling. It's all signaling. Right. I've heard this many times from people who totally ought to know better. And I say, that's definitely not what I've said. I've explicitly said the opposite. What I say is that multiple things are going on. And signaling is most of what's going on, but I absolutely agree that schools teach reading and writing. They teach math. There's other useful things that are being taught. I just say it's a, it is a very modest share of the time that students are spending in school, and it's a modest share of the career benefits, right? But the number of people who have just caricatured me, who, again, they, these are professors, they know better, right? And again, I think a lot of it's just intellectual laziness. It's easiest to dismiss a totally plausible theory by turning it into an implausible one and saying, well, this guy says no one learns to read in school. They do. So he's wrong. Like I didn't say that. Right. I said that you have the fraction of time that students spend on learning, you know, job skills that are likely to be useful in the future is low. I mean, I say my preferred share is a 20% of, of the time is spent used learning useful skills. 80% is spent learning stuff that you are not really going to need to know again, unless of course, some miracle happens, like you become a history teacher, and you, then maybe you need to know your history. Oh, actually, and on that note, I didn't even have this written down. But as you said that, it just occurred to me too that one sort of fun turn of phrase you did in the book is you said um, a lot of people make uh, it was it was you went into the joke where people say uh, you know those who can't uh, do teach, and you said that uh, upon sort of the the initial thought that people have in their head when they hear that s sort of quip, uh, you said that it, the truth is actually a little more more twisted. I think you said in the book, right? Is that in in reality, it's that um, it's not that teachers are I, I forget maybe. Maybe you have it on the more on the top of your head now too, but it's not that teachers are teaching sort of uh, impractical skills or things that they don't know. They're actually teaching a bunch of impractical things that they do in fact know. That is their skill yes, set. Yes, yes, yes. So I say teacher, yeah, it's not that teachers are teaching practical skills they can't do themselves. They're teaching impractical skills that no one needs to know. Right. That, that's what it was. Yeah. Well, now, again, of course, not literally no one, but uh, you know, you know teach, people that teach that very subject need to know it. Small handful of other people. Otherwise, you don't need to know it. Right. Exactly. If I if I ended up being sort of an, a social studies teacher teaching about tectonic plates and all these things, that's that'd be good for me. But that yeah. social studies yeah. class didn't yeah, you know, like, me. Teachers see tectonic plates. They, they know tectonic plates more or less. I mean, they're not researchers. They don't know the latest papers. They, they, 
You know, there's a plate. Yeah, exactly. And 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 in the same vein, um, so so and you touched on it. So later in the book, you make the differentiation between learning and earning, and what people actually learn and and get to apply later, whether it's at a university level or, or in a job scenario. Um, so for the former, for learning, can you talk to us about the process you went through to relate subjects that are actually taught at different levels of schooling to the degrees and professions they're pursuing later? This was very fascinating to me. You, you kind of went into high school, I think, like curriculums and itineraries and actually related all the things that people spend their time on to what they're doing later, either in a post-secondary environment or job environment. Yeah. So for the U.S., there are good statistics measuring the amount of time that high school students spend on all the different subjects. And so what I did is I just went through the subjects and uh, and classified them and said, you know, subjects that are likely that are useful in a wide range of jobs, subjects that are useful in a narrow range of jobs. And then so then there's the subjects where they're basically only useful if you become a teacher of the subject. Right. So, you know, you, know, you have subjects like algebra, you know, like I say useful in a very wide range of jobs. So that kind of ability to work with numbers in a, in a systematic way, lots of jobs, you know, that, that, that's useful. On the other end, geometry. Something where there's hardly any jobs that use geometry, you know, like even if you're a scientist, you're not going to use geometry. So maybe an architect, you know, even that's a real pretty stretch. So really like geometry, unless you become a math teacher, you're not going to be using geometry. Then you go over a lot of, a lot of other ones. So of course, you can get poetry, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, like when do you need poetry in real life? Only if you're going to be teaching poetry. I mean, of course, even there, you don't need to know it very well because you're just teaching at high school kids generally who would like, like know, you know, like you could, you know, basically, you know, like you could just stay one, one poem ahead of the class, probably, right. yeah. like as to how many students would even know the difference or care pretty low. Um, yeah. So, you know, and then similarly for majors, just go over, you know, like, you know, like, like, you know, things like a psychology major. Well, you say, well, psychology majors for training psychologists. Uh, I say that's actually not true because the number of new psychology majors that we graduate every year exceeds the total number of psychology jobs in the whole economy. So obviously, an a very large majority of people who get psychology degrees are not going to end up working in psychology because we have to 40 times as many psychology degrees as we have psychology jobs. So in any of what communications is another great one. Sounds vocational, but then you realize that the number of actual jobs in the media are, are microscopic compared to the number of people getting these degrees. Right. You know, and then on the other end, you do have things like CS, where, of course, most people get a CS degree if you wind up working in CS. And there's another interesting point here, too. Uh, that, and you said in the book, and, and you note this, as, as many other critics of the modern education system do as well, regardless if they're talking about funding or not, how to, how to solve it. But at least they recognize this as a problem that regardless of what's taught, because a critic might say of yours might say, well, I mean, even if they don't directly apply it or it's not related, they're, they're at least still learning this wealth of information that they can carry forward in life. This is one of the common responses. But as you point out in your book, it, it doesn't people appear that people are retaining much of what they're supposedly learning either, especially in high school. Yeah, so I was actually just telling my son today about the what I call the iron laws of pedagogy. All right. These are the bitter truths that if you have been a teacher, you really can't not know. You might not want to admit them. But, you know, the first bitter truth is students only learn a, a small fraction of what they're taught. You know, second, second bitter rule is students remember only a small fraction of what, the, what, of what they learn. And the third bitter rule is that they apply only a small fraction of what they know. So you put that all together and the payoff in terms of improving someone's skill for, in education turns out to be very low because so you're multiplying these three small numbers together to get a super small number. And actually, that's an excellent place to take our break. So we'll do so right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Brian Kaplan today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to us at curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Joe Aragona, John Robson, and Ken Dubian. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and as always, please remember to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Brian Kaplan today. Brian, before the break, uh, we had some excellent background conversation on uh, human capital purism, uh, signaling. We talked a bit about learning. And as I said, there's sort of a pair there, learning and earning. So I want to talk about earning now, actually. So you do point out in the book, aside from learning again, that education probably means, formal education means you will enjoy a higher standard 
living and income. It's not as high as some shills for the education system will yeah, have yeah, you believe, right. but it's definitely undeniable. All right. So if you go and take a look at first the raw numbers, obviously you'll see the people with more education make more money. If you are statistically literate, you'll say, well, that's correlation doesn't show that the education caused it. But then there is a large body of research that tries to actually answer the question, to what extent is it genuinely caused? So this is where you want to do things like statistically adjust for the intelligence of people before they go to school. So you get a measure of their intelligence or some other academic test, and you see, okay, what happens if you have two people with exactly the same college admission test scores, but one actually gets the college degree and one doesn't? And you can do that. And you can go and try putting in multiple additional checks. You could say, well, what about people from richer families? Maybe being in, coming from richer family helps you make more money because your family has business connections mm. or will help you to get a job. And then people like that are more likely to go to college as well. But then you wind up falsely attributing the earnings increase due to the family to the education. So let's go and compare two brothers. But one actually did the school, one didn't. They're both in the same family, right? So you can put in all that. And then you can go back and try to figure out how much of this is genuinely, how about the actual career benefit is genuinely caused by the education, how much of it is merely illusory. And what I say is usually every person who's actually looked at the numbers comes away and says, first of all, it's, uh, you know, it is not as big as it seems, but nevertheless, there's still a substantial gain. And by the way, there are actually you know, some very smart economists who come away and say, it is totally real. Every last drop of it is real. There's, no, there's nothing going on. In the book, I talk about how crummy what they're doing is. Uh, but I mean, basically, they ignore all of the, of, of the simpler evidence. And then they say the only evidence that counts is, is a very certain kind of special statistical study that happens to come out the right way. Right. And I say that's not the right way to form opinions. Right. So you, you look at the totality of the evidence, not just say, I throw out 98% of the evidence because that's not good enough. And then the remaining 2% says what I want. And that's method that, but that's the methodologically pure evidence. So it's the only thing that counts. Right. right. So anyway, right. anyway, so I call that the card consensus, but what I'll say is, you know, and like every, every researcher who has taken a fair minded look at the evidence says, yes, uh, Education does cause large increases in earnings on average, but not nearly as much as it seems. Right, and again, you know, the other other thing to remember there when you're when you're when you're thinking about that is that uh, you know is that you know just because you see that you know, that, you know there is this partial gain in the, like you know like, 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 like doesn't mean that everybody gets it. Right, so I'm talking about averages. So there are of course people that go that go and get a college degree and then end up being a manager of Foot Locker, which is the job they had before they started college. Right. Um, right, and there is a substantial share of people that are what we call malemployed, where they're just at a job that is that where the expected credentials are way below what they actually have. Uh, but nevertheless, the average uh, looks good, and uh, when you see that average looks good, that means that for every person that is really disappointed in what happened to them, there's other people who are really going ching. This is great. And I remember in that on that note in that chapter, I remember you did sort of point out. You said, "Look, like." you're dealing with averages and that's the way people need to think on this thing, right? It's like everyone has their sort of anecdotal uh, point where yeah. they go, well, I know Jonathan and Jonathan has a PhD in philosophy. And why is he like, again, at Foot Locker, that kind of stuff. But as you said, you got to look across the board. You got to actually think like that. And that's what you that's what your book yeah, does. Also, although, of course, it's also worthwhile saying, are there any, is there anyone that we should expect to do worse than average? Right. And I say, yeah, there's actually a pretty big list of people she'd expect to do average, like people who are bad at math in high school aren't generally going to do very well in college. Either they just won't be able to finish or they're going to end up in a major that is generally low paying. So that's one, one, one thing. So, you know, like in general, you're, if you did poorly in high school or even mediocre in high school, then you're likely to just not finish college and then get almost no payoff out of it. So that's one group where you can say, yes, you're going to be one of the below average people probably. It's very predictable. Again, there's also things like if you do a STEM major, you're probably going to be above average by quite a lot. On the other hand, if you do a humanities major, then you're probably going to be earning much worse than average. So you know, these are all good things to think about when you're making your personal decisions. And you encourage the reader as they're reading through these chapters um, that even if they're just working through the logic in their head that they shouldn't com- for instance, if they want to sit there and say, okay, well, how much value did I get out of high school? And then they start usually comparing themselves to other people, right? You encourage people that if, they, if they're thinking through them in their head that what they shouldn't do is, um, you know, uh, compare themselves to all high school graduates or college graduates, but rather people in their tier. For and what we yeah. mean by that is, yeah. for example, if you were an above average high schooler, you should compare yourself to an above average high schooler. Well, yeah, yes. When you're trying to get a prediction for what will happen to you, 
So on the other hand, if you're trying to understand society, don't just compare yourself to other people in your tier. Think about the think about the people that you didn't hang out with. Think about, you know, think, you know, think about the kids in PE. Right. Right. There you go. Yeah, so. <laughs> in one of your chapters, shifting gears a little bit here, you take sort of a, what's called the pure selfish motive for education and, and, and take a deeper look at it. Right. And, and you did a brainstorm on it. Uh, of course, we encourage everyone to get your book and check it out for themselves. It's, it is a long chapter and we're not going to go through all of it here. But but at a high level, Amazon.ca, baby. Right. Exactly. Uh, but at a high level, there there were some take- takeaways uh, from this pure selfish motive for education. So if you'd like to go through a few, you can now. So if someone's looking pure purely selfishly they're listening here and that's their motive what are what are a couple things they should keep in mind about education so one thing i said is it almost always makes sense to finish high school right selfishly speaking even if it seems totally pointless to you nevertheless the value of the time you're giving up is very low when you're in high school because you don't have other good options and the boost your career is is quite noticeable you might say well like what kind of a job can you get with only high school degree it's like, well, what jobs can you get without a high school degree? Right, right. right. So you, you want to go and compare those two things. So if you say, yeah, well, I can't get anything good with only high school degree. Yeah, well, you can't. Well, if you only if you don't have even that, then all you can get is bad. So going from bad to okay is a big change. So I got that. Then for going to bachelor's degree, what I say there is, you know, it's a good idea to go if I think I think if you're like like in the top fifth of your high school class or like really like the top fifth of your of, uh, of like the US or US or Canada because you should be comparing yourself, you know, yeah, like basically if you went to a really good high school, then you should, it's not the top fifth of that high school. It's like the top fifth of high schoolers in general, something like that. So mm-hmm. look to see whether, whether you are a, you know, whether, whether you're doing well above average in high school. And if you were, then college is a good deal for you. And then I say there's a bunch of other knobs to turn, like, well, what are you planning on majoring in? Are you going to major in one of the high earning things like STEM or econ? Then it's looking good for you if you're gonna, if you're going to marry, marry uh, if you're going to major in art or anthropology or archaeology something like that it's not unlikely to work out so well for you. Uh, let's see. So some of the other things uh, like, like just the tuition. So I guess for your Canadian for your Canadian audience, so you have what this, do you have any private school private universities in Canada? Uh, sort of. It's it's a little complicated. Some yeah, are more expensive. But, but you have no pres- you, you have no prestigious private universities in Canada. Is that correct? Uh, not like if we're talking about like a Harvard comparison or yeah, a Yale yeah, comparison. People like will t- people talk yeah. about Queens and things like yeah. that, but it's it's different levels of yeah yeah relevant. Yeah. So anyway, what I say is that you know if you're just if you're paying just like regular tuition for a public university in the U.S., then again probably worthwhile. But again, like for, for very few people, is it worthwhile to go and pay for private for private school tuition? Maybe the very top places under special circumstances it is but for most people it's just not uh so you know like you know, like you could just take that money and put it in put it into the stock market or something like that and then you could use that to subsidize your lifestyle for the rest of your life so it's going to be a good deal right and you know I, I talk about some other things actually one that i considered fun is well do you want like do you plan on getting married eventually right well if you're planning on getting married eventually then there is an extra reason to go to an elite school hmm. because you know, like, like not like, like maybe you'll actually meet another elite person at school, but even if you don't still people in elite schools are in a specialty dating pool for the rest of their lives. I actually knew a guy who was a professor at a very top school and, you know, he was, you know, he got married before he went there. And then after, you know, then he, you know, anyway, so he has this uh, PhD from a top school and then his wife divorces him out of the blue. And then this guy who's never been popular before, Right, who never know you like 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 women never liked him. Suddenly he goes and goes on the dating sites, and now these like, like women think he's great because he has this degree from this top school. Uh, so that just permanently put him into this elite dating pool. Right? And so, and again, of course, and this is not merely that women get this benefit, although quantitatively it's a bigger benefit for them. But also, since there's very high labor force participation, especially for women with elite degrees, men now get a big payoff from going there. If you're planning on marrying, because then. Through this financial osmosis, you get your cut of what they're earning. So, I always like to tell my students, you know, that you know, my wife has, has always made a lot more money than me. And I say, like, how awesome would my dad have had to have been to get that deal back in the '60s? <laughs> you know, right. you have to be like the world's handsomest man, super charming. You know, you'd have to you know, like you have to have every like like a horse like like a horseback champion, right? right. Have, yeah, like yeah. everything going for him, <laughs> you know, right? But you know, but like, what do I have to do to to get that deal? It's it's just way easier to get that deal now because society has changed, and 
you know, and you know, like, and again, like, I like this is uh, this is not to tell people to go and like like try to be gold diggers, and right, right? Hang out at Harvard, hoping to go and glom onto someone. I'm not saying that, but I am saying you know, like it's extra an extra benefit on that side, right? There is an old saying: you can love a rich person as well as a poor one. So, uh, you know, or like it, perhaps a, a better way of putting the saying is: you know, don't marry for money, go where rich people are, and marry for love. Right. So anyway, I put that into the book as just another factor to keep in mind. If you're when you're doing the math, that should be part of the calculation. Right. And, and as I said, we were on, on the train of thought that was talking about the pure selfish motive. So, I mean, job market benefits and dating market benefits, they, they all yeah. benefit from signals. So there you go. Yeah, yeah sure, sure thing. Yeah. Right. right. And especially you know, like, I mean, I assume Canada is the same as the U.S. Uh, you know, there is very little serious dating, like especially marriage between people who have four year degrees and people who don't. It is close to the Indian caste system of old, where it's almost disqualifying now to date seal. But if you're a college graduate, you don't date someone who's not a college or like, like maybe I date them, but you don't marry them. It, it, it is a long, long-term thing. Now, if you have an advanced degree, you can still marry someone who only has a bachelor's degree. That remains acceptable. Right. So we get into the gray but, areas yes, here. But, but, the cat, but, the, you know, but this caste line is shockingly strong in U.S. data. I haven't seen Canadian data, but I'm willing to bet it's just the same there. No, I, and I haven't seen the data either, but that's a very interesting question. But I, I do, I would not deny off, off the top of my head that there are, I wouldn't say there aren't these weird socioeconomic sort of class barriers. Like, like do, you have, do you have any married friends with a college degree who married someone who didn't have a college degree? You can, you know a single case? No, actually, the only, the only, the only exception, the only exception I would say, and maybe this is a little different in the States when, when you kind of go to like a, so in Canada, when we say like the university college, college is usually more like a, tr- a trade school. So if you had like a year certificate or something, you might see that that a bit more closely related to people who, who don't have another college degree or have finished high school kind of thing. But you're right. Sort of as you go up this sort of echelon, there's definitely sort of this pairing of people in these like socioeconomic brackets that are looking for like people with, with degrees. And it's sort of like, that's sort of ideas has a lot to do with the backgrounds too and where people grow up but that's a whole different conversation but an excellent so possibly someone with a trade degree in computer science could still marry someone with a bachelor's degree in psychology yes maybe that cast line is still crossable yes (laughs) yes for sure Well, like, exactly, exactly. If you go to the trade, there's sometimes there's like one year uh, diplomas and two year diplomas. Maybe you need the two year diploma to actually talk to some of the bachelor's degree. That's probably the way I would say see how that works. Um, so steering away from the, the pure selfish motive, uh, you you bring up and you spend a whole chapter on what, what I think is an excellent place to spend it, right? Because people talk about, okay, fine, there's there's selfish benefits to education. But what about these, these great social benefits we're always talking about, right? So you do take a deep dive into this. Um, and, uh, and you take issue with the so-called proof, quote unquote, that education has immense social, social benefits. And you also take issues with the methodologies, as we've been speaking about, that lead one to these so-called proofs. Again, we don't have time to read the whole chapter. We encourage everyone to check out the book. But again, high-level takeaways, uh, summing up where, what we should uh, think about in our head when people talk about these, uh, these social benefits. And if you will, at the, at the end of, of your spiel there as well, to talk about the, the sort of Drake equation you ended the uh, chapter with. I like that as well. All right, so just to back up, in the pure human capital story, people go to school, they acquire useful skills, it, um, it enriches, enriches them personally, but it also enriches society because you have learned how to do more stuff. So your productivity is, is up, you contribute more to society and you receive more money because you're contributing more to society. In the, in the other extreme case of pure signaling, it's very different. You get yourself a better job by showing off and getting those, and getting those credentials, getting those certifications, getting the stamps in your forehead so your applications don't get thrown away. But if you did not actually learn how to do anything, you, uh, anything additional useful, you have not enriched society. You've enriched yourself, but society is no richer. How is that possible? Because you have gotten a bigger pie, uh, a bigger slice of the pie for yourself at the expense of other people. That is what the, what's going on with the signaling model. Now, what does this mean in practice? In practice, what it means is that when people are signaling or when that when that's going on, the effect of getting more of, of overall education going up is not that the people overall get better jobs. Rather, the effect is credential inflation. Credential inflation. This is when employers simply say, "I'm going to now throw out more applications from people that have that, that just don't have high enough degrees." Right. So, and this is one where we can see this very easily in data. So there are a lot of jobs today where you need to have a college degree to get them that that your parents or grandparents could have gotten without that college degree. Now, you might say, well, maybe the job is harder. Research has looked at this. And the answer is sometimes the jobs are harder, sometimes they're easier. 
What is clear is that the degrees that you need to get a good job are higher now than they were even when the jobs have not changed at all. That's credential inflation. And that is the fruit of signaling. So you know, in the human capital model, education enriches the individual and society. In the signaling model, education enriches the individual but not society. Now, again, of course, in the real world, as I said, it's some combination of the two. But the punchline then is that yeah, your, your education enriches society much, much less than it enriches you. Your education enriches society much less than it enriches you. And that's why I say when we're looking at this from a social perspective, when we're talking about trying to go and increase funding for education and increase access in order to get more people to go, we should remember this is not enriching society as much as one individual gets it. The benefits of society are much less, which means that you know, this is a good reason to be more restrained in our spending, to be more skeptical about the value of having more people go. And again, rather than saying, wouldn't it be great if everyone went to college, then say, no, if everyone went to college, everyone wouldn't get a college-type job. Instead, college would become the new minimum, right. and then you would need to have a graduate degree in order to be a waiter in a nice restaurant, that kind of thing. So... That's the idea. Now, the Drake equation. Uh, yeah. So, um, uh, if you if you were like me when you were a kid, you saw Carl Sagan's Cosmos. He went over the Drake equation, and this is this is a set of a, a equation designed in designed just to help us discipline our thinking about how much intelligent life is there in the universe. How much intelligent life is in the universe? Well, you start with things like hmm, how many galaxies are there? Like billions. All right, that we can see. Huh, there's a lot of galaxies, all right? And how many stars are in each galaxy? Many, many billions. All right, so now we're talking billions, like many, many billions. All right, and then how many planets are in each of them? I don't know, back then it was total speculation. Now it's like, like, like we see like exoplanets, all right, 10, all right, fine. All right, how many of those planets will be in the habitable zone? Right, and you just keep multiplying, all right, and then you're like, like so out of all planets with auspicious simulations, what fraction actually get life? And this is like, oh, gee, I don't know. I don't know, it's like one in a billion, one in two, what? So anyway, so like, like you put it in, and it's like still, like, could it really be that low? Could it's like one right. in a quadrillion hospitable planets get life? Could it be that freaking all right? So do all this. And you know, the point of this is, of course, not this gives you the answer. It just disciplines your thinking and it helps people to understand why is it so bizarre that we don't see aliens all over the place? And that's because there's so many fantastic opportunities for alien life, like the universe is so big it just seems like there ought to be a lot of life but we can't find anything other than ours so then what's going on all right and i say similarly for education it's the same basic starting point where you go and just take a look and you compare the typical person with a phd in engineering the typical high school dropouts and mm -hmm. the, the the kinds of lives they live are like night and day so the phd in engineering has very high paid, very prestigious work with very little risk of unemployment. He's got great, you know, like very good marital prospects. He is very unlikely to commit crime. He's got going to be very safe. They're like, you add on all these things. And then you go and look at the typical high school, high school dropout and you see very high chance, at least in the U.S., that you are in jail. If you're a young high school male dropout, it's a very high chance you are in prison right now hmm. or like on parole or waiting trial. Right, so we start with that. If you've got a you know, like you're very unlikely to have a job. If you got a job, it's very likely to be a very low-paid job where you know, it's very unpleasant. You are a you have this pariah status. Almost almost no woman wants to marry you anyway. Uh, you like, like you're not considered serious relationship material. Maybe if you're really good looking and otherwise cool, then you could do okay for a while. But eventually, you'll be a uh, you'll be a washed up uh, high school dropout with a criminal record. And, Women are unlikely to be too interested in you. So you just go and say, look at these, these two very different lifestyles of the PhD in engineering and the high school dropout. And then you and then you say, so the idea that there wasn't an enormous benefit, there wouldn't have been enormous benefit for that high school dropout to going and trying to be that PhD in engineering is just hard to believe. And then I say, yeah, but there's a whole bunch of things to keep in mind, such as if that if that high school dropout really tried, could he have gotten that PhD in engineering? Right. Probably not. So probably he just wasn't good enough in math and wasn't smart enough to do that. All right. So then what could he have done? He probably could have done somewhat better, but even there, well, there's a chance he gets better. And then how much would that improve his conditions? And then, you know, like, like, could he, like, like he's probably not going, like, like, could he actually finish college? What could he have majored in? And you put all that together. And I say that even though it seems like there is an astronomical, diff an astronomical gain of getting more education, 
But nevertheless, when you multiply it through, especially you know, like especially from a social point of view, you realize that the gain is not that big in the end. Just as when we go and look out into the stars, we haven't found any intelligent life yet, even though it seems like there should be a lot. So let's talk about solutions for a second. Ultimately, you do, again, you talk about this stuff in the book, but let me just ask here at a high level, what should we do about all this? You you do have a chapter where we talk about those who want spending increases. And, uh, and, and it's interesting as well. You call out those who are against spending increases, but not necessarily uh, for spending decreases. So I think that yeah, gives us a bit of a reallocate. hint. Yeah, I think this gives a hint of where you stand. Yeah, so the biggest thing that I push, just like you were pointing out, I said on page one or two, is I push less education spending, cutting, right? Or as I call it, educational austerity. I know education, austerity is this word that's a negative connotation, but I love the word. I want it back, right? And you know, like, what does austerity mean? It's just common sense. It's like my dad back in the 80s. I say, hey, dad, can I have 20 bucks? And he says, well, what do you need it for? What do you need it for, Brian? And uh, what happened the last 20 bucks I gave you, right? Like, what, what came of that? Like, like, what do you think I made of money? Right? These are all very reasonable questions for anyone to ask when someone asks them for money. And when you are the trustee of taxpayer funds, these are questions that any halfway decent trustee would be asking. Right. Right? And I say that when you ask these questions, you very quickly come to the conclusion that we are wasting a giant pile of money on education. Right? Not only are there a lot of people where it isn't even selfishly beneficial because they, they're, they were just not good enough in high school to do well in college. But on top of that, there is this, there's the, uh, inflate, uh, there, there's the credential inflation point of if one person more goes to school, it probably helps their life a lot. But if you just get a whole generation to go, it raises the bar. How many credentials do you need to not have your application thrown in the trash? Right. So anyway, this is, this is what I push. I push austerity. Uh, we should be spending less, stop wasting taxpayer money. Right? And again, in response to people saying, no, 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 we should spend better, not less. But I say, look, it is really easy to spend to waste less money. Any dummy can do it. Figuring out good ways to spend money, on the other hand, is really hard. Mm-hmm. And we should not hold hostage the currently available reform of cutting, of cutting spending to this long-run dream of making education better. Right? In particular, I say that given that people have been trying to make education better for, for many years, given there's a lot of research on it, if it isn't better already, there's something wrong. It should already So either the research isn't good, or it's too hard to figure out, or the research is great, but educators just won't listen. Educators just won't listen. They're not interested in evidence-based anything. They just want to keep doing whatever they're doing or change in response to total touchy-feely fads. Right. right? <laughs> uh, if you ever, have you ever been to a back-to-school night? I have. Right. So things do change. It's not totally stagnant, although there's plenty of that too, where people just keep teaching whatever they were taught and they're, they're teaching whatever their teacher was taught. But yeah, there's a lot of change, in, at least in American schools, but the change has zero to do with any kind of research. It's all based upon touchy-feely gibberish of, oh, from now on, we're going to teach the whole student. Oh, yay. Right. right? Was, well, I'm just sitting there like, like schools were bad when I, was there, when I was a student, but at least teachers taught their subject. Now you're going to teach science without actually telling them facts. You're just going to talk. You're just going to have them do stupid posters. This is, this is a freaking joke. All right. So that was my reaction there. All right. So anyway, so cutting spending, which I know is super unpopular. And actually, as I said, I always do controversial books. Most of my controversial books, people are, are rejecting what I'm saying from the first minute. When I do education, most people are actually on board with me until about minute 45. And that's when I say, and now what we should do is cut spending. Until then, people are going, yeah, yeah, ridiculous waste, wasted so many years of my life, pointless, pointless, pointless. Then I say, okay, you know what? Let's stop doing so much of the pointless stuff. And that's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) We're going to stop spending hundreds of billions of dollars on pointless stuff? Look, we're not ready for that. So, but anyway, what's striking to me is that people are, uh, from me on educational, I can convince very ordinary people to agree with a lot of what I have to say. Because a lot of it is because I'm appealing to their firsthand experience. They know that what I'm saying fits what they have seen with their own two eyes. But then finally, when you start talking about cutting spending, this is where I am now going against a lifetime of propaganda about how only an evil person would ever want to cut spending in education. Nice people want more education spending, not less. All right. So, but anyway, and I say, look, that may sound, that may, that may sound true, but it's really not. And again, go back to my dad. Is my dad, is there something wrong with my dad saying, what do you want the money for? What happened to the last money? 
like, 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 why, why, like, like, you know, I'm not made of money. These are all very reasonable points that anyone who is in charge of taxpayer money should be asking. And no one who doesn't ask these questions deserves to be in charge of a penny of public money, I will say. Fair right enough. Now, of course, you may say, yeah, but this would disqualify almost everyone in government. But it's not my fault that, that they're terrible trustees. Right. We're on to right? something now. <laughs> yeah. Yes. You know, like, like, I mean, there's something bizarre. It's like, well, you mean to tell me that people elect people that do the, to go and spend their money who don't take seriously the responsibility to get good value for the money? That's ridiculous. And I say, oh, yeah, well, my first book was The Myth of Rational Voters, so I shouldn't be surprised. Uh, now, the other chapter that I have on trying to improve education, this is one where I've gotten much more favorable reactions. This is where I say, let's just have more vocational education. Mm. So let's shift from academic education of the kind that we currently try to force feed everyone and try to have a lot more vocational education, try to model our system much more after the German or better yet, the Swiss system, where at a fairly young age of 12 or 13 or 14, there's a test, and if you don't do well on the test, you are encouraged to learn how to do a skilled job instead of continuing learning about poetry and uh, trigonometry. Right. So, Brian, to what extent has all this stuff that's been going on with the pandemic and, and the whole world shakeup because of the pandemic, to, to what extent has all that uh, affected and either detracted from or, or reinforced your thinking on, on everything we've been talking about today? So there's a lot of people that like me who have been very quick to say, you know, the fact that Harvard is still going to charge full tuition for Zoom school it, you know, it confirms the signaling model is totally true. I think that's mm. a little bit hasty because, again, there's a lot the world's complex and a lot of things going on. Part of the, you know, a lot of reason you go to Harvard is for the signal, then there's a little bit of human capital. Then part of it is just because it is one of the best parties in the world for rich kids and for kids that get <laughs> to be paid to hang out with rich kids. Right, right, right. Uh, yeah, so if you're a poor kid that goes to Harvard, Harvard pays you. So it's like, wow. Negative price, awesome party with the future leaders of the world. Sounds like a good deal. So, uh, you know, there's so there's the party element. There's just you know seeing your friends. There's getting getting to make connections. So a lot of weird things have happened because of the pandemic. Again, of course, like if you told me that schools would actually shut down over this, I like you know like you know, like you know, eight months ago, I would have just said that's crazy. Schools won't shut down, right? But of course, um, you know. Like, that crazy view was true, and my my view was uh, was was false. What I would say is that uh, I've, I've been betting people for a long time uh, on the theme of uh, internet education or like, like online education is not going to drive traditional brick and mortar schools into the ground. It's not going to be like the Napster of, uh, of higher education, right? And I and I actually have a bunch of bets along these lines, saying that the share of 18 to 24 year old American students that are enrolled in traditional four year schools will fall no, no more than 10% over the next 10 years. Um, if at first glance you might say, okay, so you're gonna lose those bets, Brian. Actually, I won't because almost everyone that is going to college virtually is still going to a traditional four year college officially. The definition of the bets, still, I still get to win. All right now, what's going on? And again, what I was explaining again, my point was that this all comes down to the conformity. It may very well be that online school is just as good for teaching people skills. It might be just as good for demonstrating work ethic, maybe even better actually, because it takes a better work ethic to work so well in isolation probably, but it's the conformity problem that's been around before, right? Because saying, I'm not gonna go to Harvard, I'm gonna go to a, to a Zoom school. Before the pandemic, that would have looked really bad. Again, it's okay to have a few classes as long as you're still officially enrolled, although you'll notice that like MIT was careful to say, oh, well, there's Zoom school, which is MIT X. It's not, right. Right. It's it's not the real MIT yet. Yes, yes. But now, I, well, I don't know what MIT is doing, but assuming they're not bringing all their students back, I doubt it. Then now it's good. You're, again, you'll have the signal from real MIT, even though it was Zoom school, but harder to get in, more selective, and so on. Right. So you know, that, that's a lot of what's going on. But anyway, so the stigma against doing online education has now drastically fallen. So what I'll say is that, at least for the time being, I don't think the financial payoffs are going to be much reduced. Uh, if this lasts long enough, this might actually be the unstoppable force going into the unbreakable wall. That, that, and then finally, actually, this might be enough to overcome the incredible conformity pressure to keep doing regular things. Because again, like you know, paying fifty thousand bucks to go to Zoom school, I think that's is so crazy. I think that a lot of people will change. And there has been, a, from what I understand, a big shift of people that are that are no longer going to medium prestige private schools and are just doing their state school. Because they no longer get the, you know, the the rich kids party that they used to get. Right. So if you're no longer getting the rich kids party, then why should you bother going to USC, for example? 
So if you don't get any more, then you know, fine, I'll just do Zoom school. I could do UCLA. So instead instead of USC, why should I go and pay all this extra money? Whereas in the past, yeah, you get to you get the rich kids party. So that there is that extra benefit that you're tacking on. As far as the demand for, for labor is concerned, though, that be, it'll be interesting as well what what employers actually yeah. start thinking about the world yeah. and how they start judging people too, right? Yeah. So again, I mean, I so like, like I think it'll be it's still hard to get over the conformity pressure. Well, this person didn't go to real MIT; they only went to MITx. Although I do think that when things you know, basically when conditions get really weird then people be, do become more open-minded about how conformist you are based upon your behavior because they realize, well, you know, like, like in the war zone, a very conformist person might still be doing something quite unusual, right? You know, I remember the end of the movie, The Pianist, and Adrian Brody, the composer, is going around, uh, you know, he's been running for his life, and he's going around wearing a Nazi uniform jacket, and then people start shooting at him, and he's, and he's staying in Polish, don't shoot, I'm not German. And then they're like, well, then why are you wearing a, uh, why are you wearing a Nazi overcoat? Because I was cold. <laughs> All right, that's the end. Of the, that's basically the end of the movie. And you're like, yeah, like if you went around Poland today wearing a Nazi overcoat, people are going to take it very poorly. But after four years of a war zone in the middle of winter when there's no clothes available, right. then all kinds of people might start putting on a German officer's uniform. And as to whether we're going to get to that level, where employers are going to start saying, "So wait, where did you learn this? Where did you learn to code?" Right. It's like, well. Yeah, I mean, like, like my buddy taught me. And who's your buddy? He's Jack, the programmer, right? It's like, well, okay. <laughs> you know, like, like we might, things might get to the point where employers just get more, much more open-minded than they normally would because the conditions are just so odd. Right. But, uh, you know, there is, of course, a tendency for things to bounce back. How many years uh, after the war ends in Poland can you keep wearing the German officer's coat and not have, not have serious problems? Right. Right. I mean, of course, actually, the movie, Adrian Brody had serious problems right then. They were shooting at him. <laughs> but, you know, but like, like, well, I mean, maybe they'll shoot me, but I'll definitely freeze to death if I don't put on the coat. Yeah. So, and as you coat. said, less justifiable over time, for sure. <laughs> Other alternatives yeah, yeah. to the coats. Yes. So, I mean, ultimately, my view is things almost always go back to normal. But, you know, like I've gone from like, you know, two percent chance of any important disruption in the next 10 years to like seven percent chance. So, I mean, I, I mean, I still think things will probably go back to normal. Uh, although, I mean, like the, just the, like, like the, the, the people's patience for going along with this uh, is greater than I thought. Uh, you know, so, I mean, really what's happened is, is that there are some people who are, who have already long since said, screw it, I'm not going along with this. Right. But then like in my neighborhood, actually, if anything, I think the intensity of compliance is, is going up even higher. Uh, so, and like, you know, even though like I'm in an area of Virginia with very few cases, but still you know, like the fear uh, and caution that people are exercising is right. Uh, is, is at a level that I will say shocks me that we're you know, five months into it. All right. And, and, and of course the ultimate question for me selfishly is, will I actually get to teach any in-person classes at George Mason? Uh, my, my university opens, uh, you know, a week from Monday, a week from Monday, I'm supposed to be in a classroom. Right. Uh, and uh, I've signed up. I volunteered for this, but I'm still waiting and dreading that email saying, nope, uh, we're not going to do anything in real life. Too bad. Right. Or, or you have to teach behind plexiglass or something like in silence. Yeah, well, that you kind of do. But uh, right, well, right. Yeah, everyone has to wear a mask. But, uh, you know, like at this point, oh, yeah, fine, I'll do that. But uh, I've got to see some people. I can't keep living. Well, I mean, I, I do not want to keep living this way. I hate this. Right. Yeah. With that, I have to say our time with you that we've booked in is, is definitely winding down. It's almost up here. So let me push us to the formal wrap up. We've talked about a lot of great things today, Brian, but let's bring it full circle. Every episode, we want the guests to have the last word. So let me ask you the final question. What do you hope are ultimately the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on what a university degree is worth? If you wanted to leave someone with just two takeaways from our conversation, what would those be? Yeah, so takeaway number one is that from a social point of view, from the value to society, higher education is of very little value. We have way too much of it. It would be far better if a tiny fraction of the people that currently go went. So I say that's my main, uh, that is the first lesson is from a social point of view, it would be much better for society if far fewer people went and everybody else just got started their life at an earlier age. And this would not lead to a great de-skilling of the workforce because people are learning very few job skills in college anyway. Uh, the second big lesson is that whether or not it is selfishly a good idea for you to go to college depends very much on the kind of person that you are and what your plan is. So don't just buy the propaganda saying that everyone should go. Instead, take a good, hard, cold look at yourself and just say, well, 
Uh, was I doing really well in high school? If yes, then college is probably a good idea for you. If no, then it's probably not a good idea. But what would I do if I didn't? Something else, right? But it doesn't make sense to go and do something that you know is highly unlikely to work just because you don't know what to do. Instead, you know, if there was someone who just hadn't done very well, I said, "What should I try?" I say, "Well, like, tell me like some options. Like, what what are some jobs that you that are that are available to you right now, right?" And they say, "Well, I don't know. I can like work at McDonald's. It's the only one I know." Say, so, "All right, well, if that's the only one you know, right? Why not just you know, try that and see whether you could, whether you can uh, advance in that? Maybe from there you can go and become a manager at a uh, like like a like, like manager at a more prestigious restaurant that pays more, right? You know, so there's a lot of possibilities there." Right, you know, like if you got other, you know, like say also just try a lot of things. So and you know, like and see, see, like you know, look around for things that you like and are good at. Right, and you know, of course, if you're if you're younger and you just know that you don't like school, then maybe your high school itself actually has some kind of vocational training already. Right, so look at that. It's it's not it's likely to be, you know, to be not very well developed. But you know, like take what you can get and try to make the most out of the bad situation. I, th- I think we'll leave it at that. Brian Kaplan, thank you very much for joining me on the Curious Task today. Thank you very much. Uh, pleasure talking to you. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.